Giving. Well, this, this morning we continue on in a sermon series on um, the image of God and being conformed to the image of Christ. And this morning I'm um, talking about the sexuality of Jesus. Uh, this sermon should give you um, some good conversation over lunchtime. <laughs> Maybe even carry into Thanksgiving. We'll see. Um, the, uh, the, the primary scripture text actually for this is the sacred reading which, which Bob had read. Uh, but I do want to read uh, just three verses from Hebrews. And it's uh, verses 14 uh, through 18. So hear God's word to us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that they might become merciful, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when, was, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, and we give you thanks for the person of Jesus. Help us on this, this uh, difficult topic to, to gaze and to, to see uh, the beauty of the Lord as, as a human being just like us, who is tempted in every way um, and is like us um, as a faithful high priest. And so we pray this morning he would be a faithful high priest to us, leading us on this difficult topic. We pray in his name. Amen. In 1988, um, a very controversial film was released by Martin Scorsese called The Last Temptation of Christ. And in this movie, it depicts the life of Jesus uh, reimagined a bit. And uh, the most controversial thing about the film is that it, it depicts Jesus rather graphically um, having a, a sexual relationship uh, with Mary Magdalene. Uh, the filmmakers were very clear that they were not trying to base this on the Bible. It was actually based on a, a, a famous novel from the 50s by the same name. Um, but nevertheless, this, this film um, created enormous uh, blowback and controversy. There were protests at local theaters that showed it. Um, uh, the film has even been banned in certain countries. And uh, Martin Scorsese said that he had received death threats because of this film. Um, and the, to be sure, there is a great deal that is objectionable about this film. Uh, but in particular, just the, the idea of Jesus engaged in sex and the depiction of that, I think, uh, really um, made it all the more controversial. And so um, this is a, a film that's just hated uh, by, by religious folks and Christians, um, understandably so, so but it, it's, it's, it's adored by, critical, by critics. 
it, um, there's a Criterion Collection version of this, which is, knows you've reached that, that level of being like an art house film. Um, and, it's, and it's loved by critics in particular for how it humanizes Jesus. And that's the thing you, you, you read film studies on reflection on this, just how it humanizes Jesus. Now, I think what this, this film and its reception illustrates um, is how difficult it is for us to integrate spirituality and sexuality. It's very, very hard for us to think about these in the same uh, sentence. Um, and historically speaking, traditional religious belief, Christian and otherwise, um, has tended to, um, it, it, sex and faith don't mix, right? And traditional religious thinking tends to avoid or to minimize or suppress conversations about sexuality, and especially in light of the person of Jesus. Um, again, it's hard. I mean, even, I'm sure some of you read my sermon titled, Sexuality of Jesus. You're like, oh no. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to hear this. You know, there's a sense like Jesus is, he's the son of God, right? He's a Messiah, and and um, to talk about sex in Jesus, it seems, you know, just doesn't seem right. It's kind of creepy, right? Um, that, but, but so, so that's the religious, you know, the traditional religious instinct. But, but on the other hand, you have the secular imagination represented by that, by that film and its reception, um, which is seeking to humanize Jesus. And the only way they can sort of make Jesus like a full human and to relate to Jesus as a full-fledged person is to imagine him as engaged in sexual activity, right? So you see the dilemma, right? Like on the one hand, religious people are very hesitant to talk in robust and fulsome ways about how faith and sex and all that interacts. And on the other hand, um, the, the sort of secular imagination can only imagine uh, Jesus as a person, you know, having sex like, you know, the rest of the world does. But in what sense can we think about Jesus as a, as a sexual being. Uh, in what sense does Jesus have a sexuality, to use that language? In what sense is he a model um, for us? And his, in what sense does his life teach us about our own sexuality? These are not questions that we can avoid because of what the Bible claims about the person of Christ. Uh, remember what this series is about. Um, from the very beginning, I've been arguing, making the case that Jesus is not just the revelation of the true God. He's the revelation of the true humanity. Jesus comes to reveal to us not just God's nature. He comes to reveal to us that this is what it looks like to be a human being. This is what it looks like to be fully alive. And so when we're talking about conformity to the image of Christ, we're, it, it's conformity to him. Salvation is God's rehumanization project, right? It's the restoration of the fallen image in him. And again, this is why I, that, that text from Hebrews is in there. Um, the whole text, not just what I read, it has to do with how important it is that he is a human being. And Hebrews sums up really what the whole New Testament teaches about the role that Jesus' humanity plays and our salvation. Therefore, this is verse 17, therefore Jesus had, had, like necessity, had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, in every respect, except sin, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So in order for Jesus to be our great high priest, 
who was tempted in every way, he had to become a, like us in every respect. Um, which begs the question of this question of sexuality, because we are sexual beings, all of us. And so what is, it's such a central part of our humanity, so how, how do we make sense of this in the light of the person of Jesus? That's, so that's really the theme this morning, that's what I mean by sexuality. Um, some of you remember, five years ago, I preached a nearly year-long sermon series on human sexuality. 32 sermons. 32 sermons on human sexuality, and it's all on the website still, and I encourage you to take a look. The name of this series is Something Beautiful for God, A Christian Vision for Human Sexuality. And my central purpose was to present a positive vision of human sexuality in the light of the scriptures. The Bible teaches that sexuality is central to human nature. It's central to our flourishing with one another before God. And so most of us are familiar simply with the prohibitions that the Bible has to say about sex. Sex should only happen in marriage, right? But we tend also to think because of this, that the Bible and the Christian tradition has a negative view of sex and a low view of the body. And um, that is simply not true. The biblical prohibitions around sexual conduct or issues are given to protect, as I argue, the good, the true, the beautiful in human nature. It's meant to protect us from the ways that sexual sin distorts our humanity. And, you know, the Apostle Paul says that... the. Sexual sin is unique because it's a sin against the body. Other sins don't happen in the body quite the same way that sex does. So that its damaging effects are, are all the more so. And so um, in that series, I try to tell the bigger story of human sexuality and, and make sense of it. Now, um, I won't repeat that here. <laughs> I'm sure you're happy about that. But I wanted to draw one sermon out of that series on, on the person of Jesus, and I've, I've sort of revamped it or repurposed it quite a bit. And I want to just reflect on this, this issue of, of the sexuality of Jesus. And I, I say that because there's just so much to say about the topic, so many qualifications, so many things that I cannot say. Um, and uh, I encourage you to, to look deeper if you're interested. The first thing I want to direct your attention to is Jesus' own teachings about sex. And this comes from our sacred reading from Matthew 19. And in the exchange, Jesus is addressing um, a common, one of the probably the most common distortion of sexuality in his own age, which was kind of like a no-fault divorce culture. And the Pharisees or the teachers come to him and they're trying to trick him. And they ask him what his views on divorce are. And in addressing the issue, Jesus, what he does is he redirects the attention of his listeners to God's original intentions for marriage and sexuality. Uh, the, Jesus says, have you not read that he, that is God who created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. So in other words, Jesus reaffirms and upholds what is the consistent teaching of the Old Testament about sex. And that teaching is that marriage is part of God's good creation. 
um, that sexual union was designed by God and is good, but only finds its appropriate expression in the context of lifelong covenantal marriage between husband and wife. So sexual activity outside of male-female marriage is strictly prohibited in the scriptures. This is the consistent teaching of scripture from start to finish. Um, Jesus unambiguously upholds this view, which today has been uh, called uh, the traditional view of marriage and sexuality. Uh, but just to be clear, the traditional view is the biblical view. <laughs> I realize just stating this, I mean, five years ago I preached this, this series. Um, I mean, it's a hard thing to accept in our culture. It's a really hard thing for us to accept. I realize that. Um, again, this is why I've devoted 32 sermons to the topic. Um, but this, this isn't a necessary assumption or presupposition for understanding uh, Jesus' own sexuality. Now, I'm not really interested this morning in exploring Jesus' specific teaching on sex and marriage, but the sense in which Jesus himself was a sexual being in his own humanity. Now, if all that Jesus said about sex and sexuality refers just to marriage, I think that would definitely leave us in a difficult spot. Um, there's, a lot, and there's a lot of people that aren't married, who can't get married, um, or who don't want to get married, right? And so, what does that mean? Um, you know, Jesus himself never married. Uh, he never engaged in, contrary to the last temptation of Christ, uh, according to the Gospels, he never engaged in, in the sex act. But Jesus does say something in, in these verses that really just throws the doors wide open. Um, to broaden our understanding of, of what we mean when we talk about sexuality. Um, his disciples are a bit flummoxed and surprised at Jesus' strictness and his teaching about marriage and divorce. And, and, and they say to them, you know, if such is the case, it is better for a man not to marry. And Jesus follows up and he says, but Jesus, Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those who, to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, a eunuch is a person that is unable to marry because they have been uh, unnaturally cut in a sense, whether figuratively or literally. Um, the eunuch in the Bible is an image of sexual celibacy. And Je Jesus here recognizes three different categories of eunuchs. Um, the first category is the one that you could say is a person who's born that way, they're biological eunuch. And I, I just think it's amazing that Jesus already knows and makes space for the intersex person, right? Very, very rare, but true, and it does happen. People are born, and their, their genitalia is ambiguous. So there's that category. But then there are some who are eunuchs, uh, not, not because of nature, but by, by force, something that has happened to them. Um, either they want to get married, and they just never were able to get married, or maybe they uh, experienced profound abuse, or for whatever different reason, have been restricted from being able to enter into the covenant of marriage. But then the third category that Jesus says is there are some people who, 
who in a sense voluntarily embrace um, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven um, the lifestyle of the eunuch, which is, which is singleness and celibacy. And he, Jesus himself fits into this category. Jesus' sexuality is the sexuality of the eunuch. It is a sexuality that is not expressed through genital sex and marriage and childbearing and rearing, but it is not the absence, to be very clear, it is not the absence of sexuality. The eunuch is not asexual. Jesus is not asexual. But again, for us to kind of comprehend this, we really have to expand our, our categories of, of sexuality and what it means. Um, all thinking about sexuality has to start with the givenness of the human body. Uh, the human body exists as a consequence of a procreative sexual act between a man and a woman. Um, that is, that's just the biological reality of it, right? And in speaking of Jesus' sexuality, first thing we see is that he, Jesus has a real body. He has a real body. Now, he was not born in the ordinary way, and I'll come back to this with respect to the virgin birth. But the reality is that Jesus has a real body just like you and me, and it, not just any body, it's a very specific body. It's a Jewish, Palestinian male body. Um, even as the resurrected and the ascended Lord who is in heaven, he, he, he doesn't cast aside this body. That's part of our teaching about the incarnation. And, you know, Jesus doesn't mission accomplish. Okay, and I'm going back to being the eternal son of God, just sort of in deity. No. Humanity, his human nature ascends into heaven. He is still the same Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't take on an angelic, genderless body in heaven. Um, and you read the Gospels, and they're so rich in how they talk about Jesus and his person, Right? The Gospel of John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All the Gospels bear witness just to a man with an ordinary body, <laughs> right? He has to sleep and eat and drink. You know, he's, he, you know he, he can be touched. He can be kissed. He's beaten and pierced and bleeds, just like the rest of us, right? According to the New Testament, the body of Jesus is the vehicle of salvation. Jesus' body is not incidental to the salvation he achieves on our behalf. But not only does Jesus have a body, he also has, you know, I've already mentioned this, he has a biologically sexed body. He is the son of Mary, right? He's born as a baby boy from the womb of a woman. And on the eighth day in Jewish culture, just like every other baby boy, he was taken to the temple or the tabernacle, and he was circumscribed, which means that the foreskin of his penis was clipped off. Um, Todd Wilson, his pastor, um, who preached a sermon that in many ways inspired this sermon, um, I'm going to let Todd say what I don't want to say. I'm just going to quote what Todd says here. He says this, because of the incarnation, God now has a Y chromosome. Facial hair, higher basal metabolism rate, all the physiology, anatomy, and biochemistry that is distinctive to being a male. God in Christ went through puberty. He has armpit hair. He has a ring finger that's longer than an index, his index finger. And he has a deeper voice than most women in the room. God in Christ has a penis. Todd said that, not me. <laughs> and I, I just want to make a really important qualification here. Um, 
this statement and what I'm saying about the maleness of Jesus is not a statement about the divine nature. God is not a male. God is not a female. Maleness and femaleness refer to creatureliness. But Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is not a generic human being. He is Jesus of Nazareth, right? He's still that. And there's a mystery in how this works. Um, but God is not a male. I just want to be clear on that, right? And so in affirming the biological maleness of Jesus, I am not proposing us trying to recover traditional gender stereotypes for masculinity and femininity. That's not where I'm going with this point. But what I am affirming is that sexual difference is written and inscribed into the human body. And that this biological difference, even though expressed differently uh, from age to age and culture to culture, has been foundational universally, um, has been a foundational structuring assumption of all human cultures. Jesus, in his own sexed humanity as a man, fully embraces the original goodness of God's design of humanity as male and female. I mean, Jesus himself says, God created them, male and female. And I, I think, I just, you know, I'm not going to hit this too hard here, but I think this really has to push back and put the brakes on the gender revolution <laughs> that wants to argue that the two-ness of the sexes is incidental, that it's um, culturally constructed, that sex, biological sex, is something that is assigned at birth, and that to insist on recognizing the difference, regardless of what you think it means, is actually an oppressive way to pattern a society. Um, I think that the reality of Jesus pushes back on that for us as Christians. Now, if you are a woman, <laughs> you're probably wondering, okay, where does that leave me? If I need to be conformed to the image of Christ, does that mean I need to become a biological male? What space is there for me in Jesus' humanity as a woman? And herein lay the, the, the importance of all the, the nativity stories of Jesus and the person of Mary. Um, in the womb of Mary, Jesus fully embraces and assumes into his very life womanhood, female humanity. The virgin birth teaches us that miraculously and mysteriously, Jesus drew 100% of his DNA from Mary. He swam in her amniotic fluid for nine months. He was physically attached to her body through an umbilical cord. He fed at her breasts as a child. She was the single most important, formative influence in raising him for the first half of his life and never ceased to be a central part of his life. No male had anything to do whatsoever, biologically speaking, with Jesus' human nature coming into this world. It was woman all the way. It was Mary. It was Mary's yes. When the angel comes to her and announces to her that she'll be pregnant, and they have a conversation, she says, let it be, right? It's Mary's obedience, right? You know, Mary's not a co-redemptrix, but without Mary, there's no Jesus. Without Mary, there's no Jesus. And, and this is a universal truth for all humanity. No human being has life except that he or she has passed through the womb of a woman. I mean, this seems, I mean, this seems so obvious, but 
but it's, it's just, it's a fact. That is reality. And I think what all this reveals about our sexuality um, is the interdependence of the sexes upon one another. That's part of what Jesus' sexuality reveals to us, is the, the interdependence of the survival of the human race of male and female. Men need women, and women need men. God ordered it that way. Jesus in the incarnation reveals this interdependence of male and female sexuality, and he models it in his own life, in the kinds of relationships he had with women and men. So you can't understand Jesus' sexuality without Mary's sexuality, right? Um, if Jesus is the new Adam, Mary is like the new Eve. This is very important. Jesus' sexuality reaffirms for us the goodness of male and female as the ordinary expression of human nature. However, Jesus makes space and room in his humanity for that which is not ordinary. And I think that's very important. He makes room for those that don't seem to fit within society's traditional pattern and patterning of how men and women relate to one another. And this is, again, the category of the eunuch. I mean, there are those that, who never marry or who cannot marry. Um, and Jesus offers us, again, this, this beautiful image of the eunuch, which um, the eunuch in the Old Testament was a sign of the curse. Jesus does something dramatic in the New Testament, and he actually elevates the eunuch as a model, a possible model for what it means to live our humanity. The eunuch does not fit traditional stereotypes of male and female. Now again, Jesus affirms in a full-throated way the goodness of sexual difference, but he does not tell us that we can secure our worth, our identity, or fulfill our humanity by seeking to live up to kind of these, kind of an abstract ideal of being a man or a woman. In the Bible, there is no masculine spirituality and feminine spirituality. To, to follow Jesus and to be like Jesus is the only way you become a real man, and it's actually the only way you become a real woman as well. It is not union with a husband or a wife that makes you complete as a human being. It is union with Christ. It's union with Christ. That, that, is, that is so important, right? <laughs> Whether you're married, you're, you're single, you're a eunuch, you only become truly and fully alive full in your identity in Jesus Christ and in union with him. So, the first thing that we see about Jesus' sexuality is very simply that he, he navigated and he experienced the world um, as a man, but as a man related in intimate relationships with women and in fact as a man who, who would not exist, not just biologically, but culturally and, and sociologically in his development without, without women. Right? Again, there's this, this interdependence that the life of Jesus reveals. Okay. But one more thing about Jesus, and you know, I preached 32 sermons on this, and I tried, tried hard to keep this sermon not too long. Uh, there's so much to say here. Um, but the second thing I want to draw your attention to is this about Jesus' sexuality. He, he really debunks and undermines or that the notion that if you are not sexually active, you are not fully alive, or you're not fully human. 
Never again, never was there a man that was more fully alive, that was more complete in his humanity than Jesus. Yet he never marries. He never engages in genital sexual activity. He never has children. He lives as a celibate single man his whole life. And our culture tells us that sexual activity is central to uh, self-realization and identity formation, and that to deny a person uh, free expression of sexual activity is cruel and inhumane. And yet the humanity of Jesus bears witness to us and shows us that sexual activity is not central. It does not have to be central to human flourishing and becoming what God has called us to be. That there's more to our sexuality than simply the erotic and genitals. Um, the life of Jesus shows us that the experience of sexuality is deeper than mere sexual activity itself. And again, there's just so much here to, <coughs> to explore, but at root, when we talk about sexuality, there, there's, there's so much more to it. Sexual desire is at root pointing and aiming at something deeper than just the desire for coupling. It, it, it points to a deep yearning we have to be connected with God, with one another, in relationships that are intimate, that are, that are vulnerable, that are fruitful, in which you're received as a gift and you offer yourself as a gift. It's a desire for union and for enjoyment and celebration. Uh, sexuality is like, it's part of an ecosystem. You know, water is like part of an ecosystem, but water doesn't constitute all of the ecosystem, right? But if the water's bad, if there's no water, uh, the ecosystem, you know, withers up and dries. And it's, it's the same with our sexuality. It's this interconnected network that hits on all these other things. And when our sexuality becomes distorted, it distorts the whole ecosystem. But what Jesus does is he, he gives us this vision of, 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 of sexuality in the light of new creation. And he offers us a vision of, of a new creation sexuality that, that is available to everyone. Everyone, whether you're male or female or intersex or you experience gender dysphoria or same-sex track, everyone that is not based on biological sex act itself. Okay, I could preach two more sermons here, but I want to give you two, two just illustrations of what I mean by a sexuality that can't be reduced to just physical genital sex. The first one is, is I'll call it social sexuality. Social sexuality, the life of Jesus gives us this picture of a life that is overflowing with deep, loving, vulnerable relationships. And again, our, call for, our culture wants to collapse you know, um, our desire for intimate connection and being known into a sexual act. And Jesus shows us another way. Um, Jesus, you know, in the, in the text on Hebrews, it talks about having brothers and sisters, bringing, you know, part of what Jesus does is he creates a family. He's fruitful and generative in his life where he creates a family. But he does this spiritually speaking, right? In his life, we see just this incredible capacity for friendship and relationship with both men and women. Um, these were emotional relationships. Think of his relationship to Lazarus, and when he heard that Lazarus died, he, he wept. Um, they're, they're vulnerable 
um, even to betrayal. Think about when, when Judas, who was a close confidant, finds Jesus in the garden, and the way he lets everybody know is he gives him a kiss. Um, they're also physically expressive relationships, right? Think of Mary in the gospel of, not his mother, but the other Mary. Um, pours out perfume on his feet and starts rubbing and wiping his feet with that, like anointing him. And everybody's like, oh, this is very erotic. You know, and they're like, why are you letting this happen, Jesus? Or, or even think of uh, John, in the Gospel of John, he called the Beloved. And the reason he calls himself the Beloved, he says, he's the one who reclined on Jesus' breast. In other words, like when they're all gathered together for a family meal, you know, they're, they have all these pillows or couches, whatever they have, and, you know, John is the one leaning and reclining on Jesus' breast, right? This isn't a homoerotic image. This is, just really, this is the intimacy of, of friendship and union, right? And Jesus uh, embodies that for us. But the, se- the second one and the final one, and, and, and I'll close with this, is what I'll call just self-giving sexuality. Self-giving sexuality. Um, Central to our experience of our sexuality is the desire for self-giving, self-offering, right? I, I give myself to you of all that I am, right? And it's, it's, it's really beautifully symbolized, right, in, in the, the sex act in marriage, right? Like this vulnerability of self, self-giving. We all desire that. We want to be pleasing to the other, but not only pleasing to the other, we want to be received as a gift and as a blessing to the other, but we want to, to, to benefit, right? True sexuality is a sacrificial self-giving of one's whole self for the sake of the other. It, it is something when it's rightly ordered, our sexuality actually gets us out of ourselves and loving others where sex isn't about meeting our own needs and consume, you know, consumption or pleasure, but it's for self-giving. It's opening our lives up to where um, things come alive, right? Again, at the very heart of the sex act, naturally speaking, is, is something that's generative. It creates things, creates children, life. And our sexuality, when we live it out, whether we're married or single or whatever our status, when, when we're, our lives become places that are just generative of new, of, it's a place where people come and they receive life and love because we offer ourselves up in that way. And you see this in the life of Jesus um, more than any place. Passion of Jesus' sexuality is at the very heart and purpose of his ministry. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the most perfect expression of his sexuality. I'll say that one more. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the most perfect and complete expression of true human sexuality. Um, We talk about the passion, right? The passion of the Christ. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He offers himself up, again, right? Out of love, for the sake of the world. His naked body on the cross, like Adam and Eve in the garden. He's, but with very different effect, right? He's stripped completely. You know, art history hardly ever depicts what the cross really looks like, but Jesus is naked completely. Everything's hanging out. We don't, again, like to think of the sexual dimension here of the cross, but Paul doesn't actually even hesitate to make the connection for us. When he's instructing husbands and wives about marriage and sexuality, 
he reminds us of the cross. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like Jesus becomes a model of true sexuality because he gave himself up, right? He becomes a pattern of love. And the connections don't end there. They, they go on. Um, Jesus talks about himself as the bridegroom coming to get a bride. That's part of his mission, right? And at the very end of the Bible, the very, very last words of the scriptures, um, you hear this, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit is the spirit and the bride is, is the church. And they're saying, come, Jesus, the bridegroom, come. Let's consummate the marriage. The very end of history in the book of Revelation is given to us as this great marriage feast. When heaven and earth are reunited and God and his people are consummate the union of their marriage. This is true sexuality. Um, it is not about our self-expression, our self-realization, or our pleasure. It is about, and what we see in Jesus' sacrificial, it's, it's about giving one's life for the beloved, and that's what Jesus did for us. He gives us the fullest and truest expression in his passionate love and death for his bride, which is us. The Gospel of John says, by this we know love that Jesus laid down his life, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Let's pray. Lord, we, we give you thanks for the person of Jesus and the way that he loves us um, in such a passionate way. We hardly have a sense of how much you love us, Lord, but you love us like a like a husband loves a wife, or a wife loves a husband. You love us with a passion that exceeds the most romantic <laughs> um, stories and depictions that we have in our culture, Lord. We have no sense of appreciation of just how much you love us and how you are willing to surrender your body to us for our sake and for our salvation. Lord, wherever we find ourselves in relationship to Jesus in the person as our Lord in life or uh, whatever issues we might be struggling with on this topic of sexuality, may we go to him and look to him, Lord, as the one who loves us and gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.